The Personal MBA, Master the Art of Business, written by Josh Kaufman. A note to the reader. Many people assume that they need to attend business school to learn how to build a successful business or advance in their career. That's simply not true. The vast majority of modern business practice requires little more than common sense, simple arithmetic, and knowledge of a few very important ideas and principles. The Personal MBA is an introductory business book. Its purpose is to give you a clear, comprehensive overview of the most important business concepts in as little time as possible. Each idea in this book is presented in plain language. Once you know the essentials, you're free to focus on building your career, secure in the knowledge that you're considering the most important matters first. Most MBA alternative books try to replicate the curricula of top-tier business school programs. That's not the focus of the personal MBA. My aim is to help you build a solid understanding of general business practice from scratch, regardless of your current level of education or business experience. Your time is valuable. I've made every effort to distill and condense a very large and diverse topic into an approachable volume you can listen to in a few hours. If additional research into specific topics is prudent in your situation, you'll know what to look for and where to begin. Knowing where to start in common business situations is extremely valuable, whether you're a brand new entrepreneur or a successful executive with decades of experience. Having a common language to label and think about what you notice opens the door to major improvements, whether you labor alone, with a small group of colleagues, or inside the largest corporation in the world. If you combine reading this book with real-world experience, you'll reap the rewards for the rest of your life. I hope this book helps you make more money, get more done, and have more fun in the process. Introduction Why listen to this book? Since you're listening to this book, chances are you want to make something important happen. Start a business, get a promotion, or create something new in the world. It's also likely that a few things are holding you back from achieving your dream. Number one, business angst. The feeling that you don't know much about business and therefore could never start your own company or take more responsibility in your current position. Better to maintain the status quo than face the fear of the unknown. Number two, certification intimidation. The idea that business is really complicated and is a subject best left to highly trained experts. If you don't have an MBA or similar expensive credentials, who are you to say you know what to do? Number three, imposter syndrome. The fear that you're already in over your head, and it's only a matter of time before you're unmasked as a total fraud. No one likes a phony, right? Here's the good news. Everyone has these unfounded fears, and they can be eliminated quickly. All you need to do is learn a few simple concepts that will change the way you think about how business works. Once you've conquered your fears, you can accomplish anything. If you're an entrepreneur, designer, student, programmer, or professional who wants to master the fundamentals of sound business practice, this book is for you. No matter who you are or what you're trying to do, you're about to discover a useful new way of looking at business that will help you spend less time fighting your fears and more time doing things that make a difference. You don't need to know it all. One of the beautiful things about learning any subject is the fact that you don't need to know everything. You only need to understand a few critically important concepts that provide most of the value. Once you have a solid scaffold of core principles to work from, building upon your knowledge and making progress becomes much easier. The Personal MBA is a set of foundational business concepts you can use to get things done. Once you master the fundamentals, you can accomplish even the most challenging business goals with surprising ease. Over the past five years, I've read thousands of business books, interviewed hundreds of business professionals, worked for a Fortune 500 corporation, started my own business, and consulted with businesses ranging from solo operations to multinational corporations with hundreds of thousands of employees and billions of dollars in revenue. Along the way, I've collected, distilled, and refined my findings into the concepts presented in this book. Understanding these fundamental principles will give you the tools you can rely on to make good business decisions. If you invest the time and energy necessary to learn these concepts, you'll easily be in the top 1% of the human population when it comes to knowing how businesses actually work, how to start a new business, how to improve any existing business, and how to use business-related skills to accomplish your personal goals.
Think of this book as a filter. Instead of trying to absorb all of the business information that's out there, and there's a lot out there, use this book to help you learn what matters most so you can focus on what's actually important, making things happen. No experience necessary. Don't worry if you're a complete beginner. Unlike many other business books, this book does not require any prior business knowledge or experience. I don't assume you're already the CEO of a large company who makes multi-million dollar decisions on a daily basis, but this book will still be very useful if you are. If you do have business experience, take it from many of my clients around the world who have MBAs from top schools. You'll find the information in this book more valuable and practical than anything you learned earning your degree. Together, we'll explore 248 simple concepts that will help you think about business in an entirely new way. After reading this book, you'll have a much more comprehensive and accurate understanding of what businesses actually are and what successful businesses actually do. Questions, not answers. Most business books attempt to teach you to have more answers, a technique for this and a method for that. This book is different. It won't give you answers. It will help you ask better questions. Knowing what's critically important in every business is the first step in making good business decisions. The more you know about the essential questions to ask in your current situation, the more quickly you'll be able to find the answers you need to move forward. Mental models, not methods. To improve your business skills, you don't need to learn everything there is to know. Mastering the fundamentals can take you surprisingly far. I call these foundational business concepts mental models, and together, they create a solid framework you can rely on to make good decisions. Mental models are concepts that represent your understanding of how things work. Think of driving a car. What do you expect when you press down on the right side pedal? If the car slows down, you'll be surprised. That pedal is supposed to be the accelerator. That's a mental model, an idea about how something works in the real world. Your brain forms mental models automatically by noticing patterns in what you experience each day. Very often, however, the mental models you form on your own aren't completely accurate. You're only one person, so your knowledge and experiences are limited. Education is a way to make your mental models more accurate by internalizing the knowledge and experiences other people have collected throughout their lives. The best education helps you learn to see the world in a new, more productive way. For example, many people believe things like starting a business is risky. To get started, you must create a massive business plan and borrow a lot of money. And business is about who you know, not what you know. Each of these phrases is a mental model, a way of describing how the world works, but they're not quite accurate. Correcting your mental models can help you think about what you're doing more clearly, which will help you make better decisions. After learning the mental models in this book, many of my clients have realized that their picture of what businesses are and how businesses work was inaccurate. Getting their venture off the ground would be far easier than they originally imagined. Instead of wasting valuable time and energy feeling intimidated and freaking out, learning these concepts gave them the freedom to stop worrying and start making progress. This book will help you learn the fundamental principles of business quickly so you can focus your time and energy on actually doing useful things. Creating something valuable, attracting attention, closing more sales, serving more customers, getting promoted, making more money, and changing the world. Not only will you be able to create more value for others and improve your own financial situation, you'll have more fun along the way. My personal MBA People often ask me if I have an MBA. No, I reply, but I did go to business school. As a student at the University of Cincinnati, I was fortunate enough to participate in the Carl H. Lindner Honors Plus program, which is essentially an MBA at the undergraduate level. The program was generously funded via scholarships, and as a result, I had the remarkable opportunity to experience most of what business schools teach without the crippling burden of debt. I've also been on the quote-unquote fast track to corporate success. Through the University of Cincinnati's Cooperative Education Program, I landed a management position at a Fortune 500 company, Procter & Gamble, during my second year of college. By the time I graduated in 2005, I had an offer to become an assistant brand manager in P&G's home care division, a role typically reserved for graduates of top MBA programs. As I began my last semester of college, I started focusing less on my coursework and more on my future. My new job would require a solid understanding of business 
and almost all of my peers and managers would have MBAs from top-tier schools. I briefly considered enrolling in an MBA program, but it made no sense to pursue an expensive credential to get the kind of job I already had, and my responsibilities would be demanding enough without adding a load of coursework by enrolling in a part-time program. While considering my options, I remembered a bit of career advice that Andy Walter, the first associate director I reported to at P&G, had given me. Andy said, if you put the same amount of time and energy you'd spend completing an MBA into doing good work and improving your skills, you'll do just as well. Andy doesn't have an MBA. He studied electrical engineering in college. He's now one of the company's top global IT managers, responsible for leading many of P&G's largest projects. In the end, I decided to skip business school, but not business education. Instead of enrolling in an MBA program, I skipped the classroom and hit the books, creating my own personal MBA. A self-directed crash course in business. I've always been an avid reader, but before I decided to learn everything I could about business, most of what I read was fiction. I grew up in New London, a small farm town in northern Ohio, where the major industries are agriculture and light manufacturing. My mother is a children's librarian, and my father worked as a sixth-grade science teacher, then as an elementary school principal. Books were a major part of my life, but business was not. Before getting my first real job, I knew next to nothing about what businesses were or how they functioned, other than that they were places people went every day in order to draw a paycheck. I had no idea that companies like Procter & Gamble even existed until I applied for the job that swept me into the corporate world. Working for P&G was an education in itself. The sheer size and scope of the business, and the complexity required to manage a business of that size, boggled my mind. During my first three years with the company, I participated in decisions across every part of the business process, creating new products, ramping up production, allocating millions of marketing dollars, and securing distribution with major retailers like Walmart, Target, Kroger, and Costco. As an assistant brand manager, I was leading teams of 30 to 40 P&G employees, contractors, and agency staff, all of whom had competing projects, plans, and priorities. The stakes were huge, and the pressure was intense. To this day, I can't help but marvel at the thousands of man-hours, the millions of dollars, and the enormously complex processes necessary to make a simple bottle of dish soap appear on the shelf of the local supermarket. Everything from the shape of the bottle to the scent of the product is optimized, including the text on the cardboard boxes used to ship inventory to the store. My work at P&G, however, wasn't the only thing on my mind. My decision to skip business school in favor of educating myself developed from a side project into a minor obsession. Every day I would spend hour after hour reading and researching, searching for one more tidbit of knowledge that would help me better understand how the business world worked. Instead of using the summer after graduation to relax and go on vacation, I spent my days haunting the business stacks at the local bookstore, absorbing as much as I possibly could. By the time I officially started working full-time for P&G in September 2005, I had read hundreds of books across every discipline that business schools teach, as well as in disciplines that most business schools don't cover, like psychology, physical science, and systems theory. When my first day at P&G finally arrived, I felt prepared to strategize with the best of them. As it turned out, my self-education served me well. I was doing valuable work, making things happen, and getting good reviews. As time went on, however, I realized three very important things. Number one, large companies move slowly. Good ideas often died on the vine simply because they had to be approved by too many people. Number two, Climbing the corporate ladder is an obstacle to doing great work. I wanted to focus on getting things done and making things better, not constantly positioning myself for promotion. Politics and turf wars are an inescapable part of the daily experience of working for a large company. And number three, frustration leads to burnout. I wanted to enjoy the daily experience of work, but instead I felt like I was running a gauntlet each day. It began to affect my health, my happiness, and my relationships. The longer I stayed in the corporate world, the more I realized I wanted out. I desperately wanted to work on my own terms as an entrepreneur. The Wheat and the Chaff If there's one thing I'm good at, it's taking in a huge amount of information and distilling it to the essentials. I'm a synthesist by nature, 
and my travels through the world of business literature quickly became an exercise in separating the diamonds from the rough. The amount of business information being published every day is staggering. As of this writing, the Library of Congress has approximately 1.2 million business-related books in its general collection. Assuming you read at an average speed of 250 words per minute, and an average book contains 60,000 words, it would take 528 years of around-the-clock reading to finish the entire collection, 822 years if you allowed yourself the luxury of food and sleep. According to Balker, the company responsible for assigning ISBN numbers for the publishing industry, over 11,000 new business books are published worldwide each year, adding to the millions of business books printed since the early 1900s. Amazon.com carries over 630,000 business-related titles, not counting audiobooks, ebooks, or materials that are published without an ISBN. Of course, books aren't the only source of business information available. Take magazines and newspapers, for example. 527 major business-related periodicals are currently tracked by the Wilson Business Periodicals Index. Every year, the WBPI adds over 96,000 records to its database of 1.6 million entries. That figure doesn't include blogs. According to Google Blog Search, there are currently over 110 million business-related blog posts on the Internet, a figure that's growing daily. There's certainly no shortage of business writers in the blog world. The blog search engine Technorati has indexed over 4 million bloggers who write about business-related topics. Sifting through the massive amount of business information available would be an enormous challenge. My early business research was mostly haphazard. I simply went to the bookstore and picked up a book that looked interesting. For every great book I found, I had to wade through ten times as many hastily assembled texts by consultants who were more interested in creating a 300-page business card than providing genuinely useful information. I started to wonder, how much of what's out there, and there's a lot out there, I really needed to know. How could I separate the valuable information from the rubbish? I only had so much time and energy, so I started searching for a filter, something that would direct me to the useful knowledge and keep me away from the chaff. The more I searched, the more I realized it didn't exist, so I decided to create it myself. I began tracking which resources were valuable and which ones weren't, then publishing my findings on my website, both as an archive and for the benefit of anyone interested. It was a personal project, nothing more. I was just a recent college graduate doing my best to learn something useful, and publishing my research for others seemed like a good use of time and energy. One fateful morning, however, the personal MBA went unexpectedly public, and my life changed permanently. The personal MBA goes global. In addition to reading books, I was following several hundred business blogs. Some of the best business thinking was being published on the Internet months or years before it ever appeared in print, and I wanted to read it all as soon as it was available. One of the bloggers I followed avidly was Seth Godin, a best-selling author of books like Permission Marketing, Purple Cow, and Lynchpin, and one of the earliest successful online marketers. Seth specializes in bold statements of big ideas designed to challenge you to do more, do better, question the status quo, and make a difference. One particular morning, Seth was commenting on a recent news story. Harvard was rescinding the admission of 119 previously soon-to-be Harvard MBA students. These prospective students had discovered an ethically dubious way to hack into the Harvard admissions website to view their application status before the official acceptance letters went out. The story quickly became a media frenzy, devolving into a debate about whether MBA students were naturally inclined to lie, cheat, and steal, or if business schools made them that way. Instead of being outraged at the bad behavior of the applicants, Seth had a different perspective. Harvard was giving these students a gift. By rescinding their applications, Harvard was giving these students a significant opportunity. The university was returning $150,000 and two years of their lives, which otherwise would have been spent chasing a mostly worthless piece of paper. It's hard for me to understand, Seth wrote why getting an MBA is a better use of time and money than actual experience combined with a dedicated reading of 30 to 40 good books. Holy cow, I thought. That's exactly what I'm doing. Over the next two days, I created a list of the books and resources I had found most valuable in my studies, then published it on my blog with a link to Seth's post, so anyone interested in figuring out how to do what Seth suggested would be able to find it. 
Then I typed a quick email to Seth and sent him a link to my post. Two minutes later, a post went up on Seth's blog directing people to my reading list, and a flood of readers from around the world started visiting my website. Popular personal development and productivity blogs like lifehacker.com picked up the story, which then spread to social media websites like Reddit, Dig, and Delicious. Within the first week of the personal MBA's existence, 30,000 people visited my little corner of the internet to see what I was doing. Better yet, they started talking. Some readers asked questions. Where should they start? Others suggested books they'd read, helping me with my research. A few told me the entire project was naive and that I was wasting my time. Through it all, I kept reading, researching, and developing the personal MBA in my spare time, and the business self-education movement began to snowball. In a very short time, the personal MBA grew from a one-man side project into a major global movement. The site, personalmba.com, has been visited over 1.6 million times since it went live in early 2005, and the project has been featured by the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg Businessweek, Time, Fortune, Fast Company, and hundreds of other major news organizations and independent websites. In late 2008, I left P&G to focus on building the personal MBA full-time. As much as I enjoyed the interest in my reading list project, I soon realized that providing a reading list wasn't enough. People read business books to solve specific challenges or to improve themselves in some tangible way. They're looking for solutions, and the list of books, while valuable, could only do so much. The books themselves aren't as important as the ideas and knowledge they contain, but many of my readers were missing out because it took hours of turning pages to get to the good stuff. Many personal MBA readers started enthusiastically, then quit after reading a few books. It took too long to reap the rewards, and the demands of work and family life inevitably intervened. To help them, I had more work to do. Munger's Mental Models my first glimpse into the future of the personal MBA came when I discovered the work of Charles T. Munger. Charlie Munger was born in Omaha, Nebraska, shortly before the Great Depression. As a young man, Charlie skipped high school athletics in favor of reading to satisfy his intense curiosity about how the world worked. His early business experience consisted of working in a family-owned grocery store for $2 a day. In 1941, Charlie graduated from high school. After two years of studying undergraduate mathematics and physics at the University of Michigan, he enlisted in the Army Air Corps, where he was trained as a meteorologist. In 1946, after leaving the Army, he was accepted to Harvard Law School, even though he had never earned a bachelor's degree, which wasn't absolutely required at the time. Charlie graduated from Harvard Law in 1948 and spent the next 17 years practicing as an attorney. In 1965, he left the law firm he had created to start an investment partnership, which went on to outperform the market by 14% compounded annually over 14 years, an astounding record given his complete lack of formal business education. Charlie Munger isn't a household name, but Warren Buffett, Charlie's business partner, certainly qualifies. Buffett and Munger purchased Berkshire Hathaway, a floundering textile manufacturer, in 1975 turning it into a conglomerate investment holding company. Together, Buffett and Munger became billionaires. According to Buffett, Charlie's mental model-centric approach to business is a major contributing factor in the success of Berkshire Hathaway and Buffett's status as one of the world's wealthiest business owners. And I quote, Charlie can analyze and evaluate any kind of deal faster and more accurately than any man alive. He sees any valid weakness in 60 seconds. He's the perfect partner, end quote. The secret to Charlie's success is a systematic way of understanding how businesses actually work. Even though he never formally studied business, his relentless self-education in a wide variety of subjects allowed him to construct what he called a latticework of mental models, which he then applied to making business decisions. And I quote, I've long believed that a certain system, which almost any intelligent person can learn, works way better than the systems most people use to understand the world. What you need is a latticework of mental models in your head. And with that system, things gradually fit together in a way that enhances cognition. Just as multiple factors shape every system, multiple mental models from a variety of disciplines are necessary to understand that system. You have to realize the truth of biologist Julian Huxley's idea that life is just one damn relatedness after another. 
So you must have all the models, and you must see the relatedness and the effects from that relatedness. It's kind of fun to sit here and outthink people who are way smarter than you are because you've trained yourself to be more objective and more multidisciplinary. Furthermore, there's a lot of money in it, as I can testify from my own personal experience. End quote. By basing their investment decisions on their extensive knowledge of how businesses work, how people work, and how systems work, Buffett and Munger created a company worth over $195 billion, an astounding track record for a meteorologist-turned-lawyer from Omaha with no formal business education. Discovering Munger's approach to business education was a huge validation. Here was a man who, decades before, had decided to do what I was doing, and it had worked extraordinarily well. Munger's method of identifying and applying fundamental business principles made much more sense to me than most of the business books I'd previously read. I resolved to learn everything I could about the mental models Charlie used to make decisions. Unfortunately, Charlie has never published a comprehensive collection of his mental models. He's given hints in his speeches and essays, even going so far as to publish a list of the psychological principles he finds most useful in Poor Charlie's Almanac, a recent biography. But there was no single text that contained, quote-unquote, everything you need to know in order to succeed in business. If I wanted to understand the fundamental principles of how every successful business person works, I'd have to discover them myself. To do that, I had to rebuild my understanding of business from the ground up. Connecting the Dots Most business books and business schools assume that the student already knows what businesses are, what they do, and how they work, as if it were the most obvious thing in the world. It's not. Business is one of the most complex and multidisciplinary areas of human experience, and trying to understand how businesses work can be remarkably intimidating, even though they surround us every day. Businesses are so much a part of daily life that it's easy to take the business world for granted. Day after day, businesses deliver what we want swiftly, efficiently, and with remarkably little fuss. Look around. Almost every material good you're surrounded by right now was created and delivered to you by some sort of business. Businesses invisibly create and deliver so many different things in so many different ways that it makes generalizations difficult. What do apple cider and airlines have in common? As it turns out, quite a bit, if you know where to look. Here's how I define a business. Every successful business creates or provides something of value that other people want or need at a price they're willing to pay in a way that satisfies the purchaser's needs and expectations and provides the business sufficient revenue to make it worthwhile for the owners to continue operation. Take away any of these things, value creation, customer demand, transactions, value delivery, or profit sufficiency, and you have something other than a business. Each factor is both essential and universal. As I deconstructed each of those factors, I found additional universal requirements. Value can't be created without understanding what people want, which is market research. Attracting customers first requires getting their attention, then making them interested, which is marketing. In order to close a sale, people must first trust your ability to deliver on what's promised, which is value delivery and operations. Customer satisfaction depends on reliably exceeding the customer's expectations, which is customer service. And profit sufficiency requires bringing in more money than is spent, which is finance. None of these functions is rocket science, but they're always necessary, no matter who you are or what business you're in. Do them well, and your business thrives. Do them poorly, and you won't be in business very long. Every business fundamentally relies on two additional factors, people and systems. Every business is created by people and survives by benefiting other people in some way. To understand how businesses work, you must have a firm understanding of how people tend to think and behave, how humans make decisions, act on those decisions, and communicate with others. Recent advances in psychology and neuroscience are revealing why people do the things they do, as well as how to improve our own behavior and work more effectively with others. Systems, on the other hand, are the invisible structures that hold every business together. At the core, every business is a collection of processes that can be reliably repeated to produce a particular result. By understanding the essentials of how complex systems work, it's possible to find ways to improve existing systems, whether you're dealing with a marketing campaign or an automotive assembly line.
Before writing this book, I spent several years testing these principles with my clients and my readers. Understanding and applying these business mental models has helped them launch new careers, land job offers from prestigious organizations in the corporate and academic worlds, get promoted, start new businesses, and in several cases go through the entire product development process from idea to first sale in less than four weeks. These concepts are important because they work. Not only will you be able to create more value for others and improve your own financial situation, you'll find it noticeably easier to achieve what you set out to do, and you'll have more fun along the way. For the Skeptics This is a book about business concepts, not business schools. However, many people simply don't believe it's possible to reap the benefits of a comprehensive business education without forking over enormous sums of money for a name-brand diploma from an Ivy League school. This section, which will discuss the merits and downfalls of traditional MBA programs, is for the skeptics. Should you go to business school? Every year, millions of individuals determined to make a name for themselves have the following thought. I want to become a successful business person. Where should I get my MBA? Since you're listening to this book, you've probably wondered the same thing at some point in your life. Here's the answer. Five simple words that will save you years of effort and hundreds of thousands of dollars. Skip business school. Educate yourself. This book will show you how to succeed in business without mortgaging your life. Three big problems with business schools. I have nothing against people who work in business schools. By and large, business school professors and administrators are lovely people who try their best and want to see their students succeed. Unfortunately, MBA programs around the world have three major systemic issues. Number one, MBA programs have become so expensive you must effectively mortgage your life to pay the price of admission. Return on investment is always directly related to how much you spend, and after decades of tuition increases, MBA programs are increasingly a burden to their students instead of a benefit. The primary question is not whether attending a university is a positive experience. It's whether or not the experience is worth the cost. Number two, MBA programs teach many worthless, outdated, and even outright damaging concepts and practices, assuming your goal is to actually build a successful business and increase your net worth. Many of my MBA holding readers and clients come to me after spending tens, sometimes hundreds of thousands of dollars, learning the ins and outs of complex financial formulas and statistical models, only to realize that their MBA program didn't teach them how to start or improve a real operating business. That's a problem. Graduating from business school does not guarantee having a useful working knowledge of business when you're done, which is what you actually need to be successful. Number three. MBA programs won't guarantee you a high-paying job, let alone make you a skilled manager or leader with a shot at the executive suite. Developing skills like decision-making, management, and leadership takes real practice and experience, which business schools can't provide in the classroom, regardless of how prestigious the program is. Instead of spending huge sums of money to learn marginally useful information, you can spend your time and resources learning things that actually matter. If you're ready and able to invest in improving your skills and abilities, you can learn everything you need to know about business on your own without mortgaging your life for the privilege. Delusions of Grandeur It's very easy to figure out why business school is attractive. It's sold as a one-way ticket to a permanently prosperous and comfortable life. It's a pleasant daydream. After two years of case studies and happy hour quote-unquote networking, corporate recruiters will be shamelessly throwing themselves at you each of them offering a prestigious and high-paying position at a top firm. Your rise up the corporate ladder will be swift and sure. You'll be a captain of industry, collecting huge bonuses and tabulating the value of your stock options while sitting behind an impressive-looking mahogany desk in the corner office on the top floor of a gigantic glass skyscraper. You'll be the big boss, telling other people what to do until it's time to go play golf or relax on your yacht. You'll be wined and dined all over the world, and the lowly masses will venerate you and your astounding achievements. Everyone will think you are rich, intelligent, and powerful, and they'll be damn right. What price for the promise of riches, power, and glory? A few thousand dollars in application fees, an effortless scribble on a loan document, and you'll be on your way to the top. 
Not only that, you'll get a two-year vacation from actually working. What a fantastic deal. Unfortunately, dreams and reality are often quite different. Your money and your life. For the moment, let's assume you think business school is your ticket to everlasting success. You're in luck. Getting into at least one business school is relatively easy. If you pay thousands of dollars in application fees, write enough personal statements that strike just the right balance of confidence and humility, and complement the quality of the school's program and interviews, sooner or later some college or university will generously bestow upon you the chance to become the next Bill Gates. Here, though, is where the problems begin. Business school is insanely expensive. Unless you're independently wealthy or land a massive scholarship, your only option is to effectively mortgage your life by taking out an enormous loan against your future earnings to pay the tuition. Most prospective MBA students have already graduated from college with an undergraduate degree, so they're already carrying some level of student loan debt. According to FineAid.org, a college financial aid website, the average cumulative debt of a student who completed an undergraduate degree in the United States in 2009 is $22,500. For students who choose to pursue an MBA program after undergrad, total average cumulative debt is $41,687. That doesn't include providing for material needs like rent, groceries, and car payments, which are often funded via additional student loans. $40,000 is a significant chunk of change, assuming you go to an average school. But who wants to be merely average? If you're shooting for offers from top-tier financial service companies like Goldman Sachs or major consulting companies like McKinsey and Bain, which are historically the highest-paying options for newly minted MBAs, you're going to have to attend a top-10 program, and that will require a lot more than a measly forty grand. Breaking out the Benjamins According to the 2011 U.S. News & World Report Business School Rankings, the top 15 MBA programs charge $40,983 to $53,208 per year for tuition. That amount doesn't include fees, student loan interest, or living expenses. In recent years, tuition has been increasing at a rate of 5 to 10% per year. According to data compiled by Fortune contributor John A. Byrne in late 2011, Eight business schools exceed $300,000 in costs once you account for tuition, fees, living expenses, and the opportunity cost of lost wages. Harvard, Stanford, Wharton, Columbia, Dartmouth, Chicago, MIT, and Northwestern. Harvard and Stanford topped the list at a total cost of $348,800 and $351,662, respectively. These costs are before student loan charges. Tack on 2-3% in origination fees and a 6-10% compound annual interest rate on the loan balance, and you've accounted for the true cost of enrolling in a top-tier business school. Research conducted by Bloomberg Businessweek and Payscale.com indicates that a typical graduate of a top-ranked MBA program collects $2.4 to $3.8 million in total career pay, depending on the program. Based on these numbers, you can expect to give up 8 to 10% of your expected lifetime earnings in exchange for two years of case studies and networking at a top-ranked business school. That's assuming you get in, of course. Top business schools are notoriously hard to get into. The programs can afford to be picky because of their reputations. It's circular. The reputation of a business school is built on the success of its graduates, so the top schools only admit those students intelligent and ambitious enough to make it through the rigorous selection process. The ones who are already likely to succeed, MBA or no MBA. Business schools don't create successful people. They simply accept them, then take credit for their success. If you get in, the school will do what it can to help you get a decent job, but making things happen will always be your responsibility. If you're successful in the years after graduation, the school will hold you up as a shining example of the quality of their program and will use the halo effect of your name to recruit more students. Lose your job and go broke, and you'll get neither publicity nor help, but the student loan bills will keep rolling in. Sorry about your luck. Here's what Christian Schraga, a 2002 graduate of the Wharton School of Business, had to say about his MBA experience in an essay on his website. And I quote, My been there done that experience has taught me that a top MBA program provides some benefits, but at a steep price. If you are currently considering attending a full-time program, please stop to ask yourself whether or not you are willing to take the risk. 
Business school is a big risk. Should you choose to enroll, the only certainty is that you will shell out about $125,000. Such a figure correlates to a $1,500 a month non-deductible loan repayment and a 10-year period of time in which you will not be able to save a red cent. If you think that this payment is worth it to earn the pedigree, the fraternity, the two years off, and a shot at the big bucks, then the MBA is right for you. If not, please do something else. End quote. Wise words. If you don't absolutely need the sheepskin, don't enroll. What an MBA will actually get you. In a study entitled The End of Business Schools, Less Success Than Meets the Eye, which was published in the Academy of Management, Learning, and Education, Jeffrey Pfeffer of Stanford University and Christina Fong of the University of Washington analyzed 40 years of data in an effort to find evidence that business schools make their graduates more successful. Their hypothesis was remarkably straightforward, and I quote, If an MBA education is useful training for business, then the following should be true as a matter of logic. Number one, having an MBA degree should, other things being equal, be related to various measures of career success and attainment, such as salary. And, number two, if what someone learns in business school helps that person be better prepared for the business world and more competent in that domain, in other words, if business schools convey professionally useful knowledge, then a measure of how much one has learned or mastered the material, such as grades and coursework, should be at least somewhat predictive of various outcomes that index success in business, end quote. What Pfeffer and Fong found was astonishing and disturbing. Business schools do almost nothing aside from making money disappear from students' pockets. And I quote, Business schools are not very effective. Neither possessing an MBA degree nor grades earned in courses correlate with career success, results that question the effectiveness of schools in preparing their students. And there is little evidence that business school research is influential on management practice, calling into question the professional relevance of management scholarship. End quote. According to Pfeffer and Fong's study, it doesn't matter if you graduate at the top of your class with a perfect 4.0 or at the bottom with a barely passing grade. Getting an MBA has zero correlation with long-term career success. None. And I quote, There is scant evidence that the MBA credential, particularly from non-elite schools, or the grades earned in business courses, a measure of the mastery of the material, are related to either salary or the attainment of higher-level positions in organizations. These data, at a minimum, suggest that the training or education component of business education is only loosely coupled to the world of managing organizations, end quote. That's tough to hear if you've forked over a few hundred thousand dollars to buy a degree whose sole purpose is to make you a successful business person. It gets worse. Getting an MBA doesn't even have an impact on your total lifetime earnings. It takes decades of work simply to dig yourself out of the debt you took on to get the degree. Christian Schraga, the Wharton MBA, estimated that the 10-year net present value, which is a financial analysis technique used to estimate whether or not an investment is worthwhile, of a top MBA program is approximately negative $53,000. That's bad. This assumes a pre-MBA base salary of $85,000, a post-MBA salary of $115,000, which is a 35% increase, marginal tax rate increases, which you'll pay if your job requires moving to a major city, and a discount rate of 7% to account for opportunity costs, which are the opportunities you give up by spending money on business school instead of investing it in something else. In plain English, Schraga used a technique business schools teach to prove that getting an MBA from a top-tier school is a bad financial decision. Assuming Shraga's assumptions are accurate, it takes 12 years of solid effort just to break even, and that's assuming everything goes according to plan. If you graduate into a bad job market, you're screwed. Where business schools came from MBA programs don't make students more successful because they teach very few things that are actually useful in the working world. As Pfeffer and Fong state in their paper, and I quote, A large body of evidence suggests that the curriculum taught in business schools has only a small relationship to what is important for succeeding in business. If there is, in fact, only a slight connection between the skills needed in business and what is taught in graduate business programs, then the absence of an effect of the MBA or mastery of the subject material on the careers of graduates is understandable, end quote. 
If you look at the curriculum of any business school, you'll notice a few assumptions about what you'll do after you graduate. You'll either be a C-level executive at a large industrial manufacturing or retail operation, become a consultant, become a corporate accountant, or work as a financier at an investment bank. Accordingly, the coursework is implicitly structured around keeping your massive operation running and or doing sophisticated quantitative analysis, not doing any of the other critically important things that 99% of working business people do in any given day. The disconnect between the classroom and the working world makes sense when you realize that the concepts, principles, and techniques most business schools teach were designed for a very different world. Graduate schools of business started popping up at the end of the 19th century during the Industrial Revolution. The intent of early MBA programs was to train managers to be more scientific in an effort to make large operations more efficient. Frederick Winslow Taylor, the pioneer of quote-unquote scientific management techniques that now form the foundation of modern management training, used a stopwatch to shave a few seconds off of the average time a workman took to load iron ingots into a train car. That should give you a good idea of the underlying mindset of most business school management programs. Management was thought of mostly as an exercise in getting people to work faster and do exactly what they're told. The philosopher kings behind what passed for management psychology were Ivan Pavlov and, later on, B.F. Skinner, who believed that if you discovered and applied just the right stimulus, people would behave however you wanted. This mentality led to the widespread use of financial incentives to influence behavior, salary, bonuses, stock options, and so on, in an effort to encourage business professionals and managers to act in the best interest of corporate shareholders. There's an enormous and growing body of evidence that direct incentives often undermine performance, motivation, and job satisfaction in the real world. Despite more useful competing theories of human action, the search for the magic stimulus continues in business school classrooms to this day. In Search of Distribution Marketing, on the other hand, was originally a way to get additional store distribution for physical products and keep expensive factory production lines busy. With the widespread adoption of the radio and television in the early 20th century, it became possible to advertise to a large national audience, paving the way for national brands and national retailers. More advertising typically resulted in more distribution, which in turn resulted in more sales and even more money to spend on advertising, continuing the cycle. As decades passed, this self-reinforcing feedback loop resulted in a few dominant behemoths in each industry. Business schools became obsessed with how to capture market share and create gigantic companies quickly via ever-larger mergers, raising the financial stakes with each acquisition. For entrepreneurs, venture capital became a must-have aspect of the business process. How else could you afford to build a factory or a national brand in a few short years? Economies of scale and production meant large companies could outcompete smaller rivals by offering similar products at lower prices. Investors wanted to see huge returns on their money quickly, prudence be damned, rewarding speculators who wrote business plans promising a huge exit in a short amount of time. Viable businesses were acquired and gutted in the name of conglomeration and quote-unquote synergy, all with the blessing of business academia. The sheer enormity of integrating these gigantic, complex business systems was ignored or overlooked, leading most of the companies that attempted huge mergers to ruin. Playing with Fire Finance, in the meantime, was steadily increasing in complexity. Before the 20th century, accounting and finance were mostly a matter of common sense and relatively simple arithmetic. The widespread adoption of double-entry bookkeeping a 13th century innovation, brought many benefits, like increased accuracy and ease of detecting anomalies like theft, at the cost of simplicity. The introduction of statistics to financial practice simultaneously enhanced analytical capability at the cost of abstraction, increasing opportunities to fudge the numbers without anyone noticing. Over time, managers and executives began using statistics and analysis to forecast the future relying on databases and spreadsheets in much the same way ancient seers relied on tea leaves and goat entrails. The world itself is no less unpredictable or uncertain. As in the olden days, the signs only prove the biases and the desires of the soothsayer. The complexity of financial transactions 
and the statistical models those transactions relied upon continued to grow until few practitioners fully understood how they worked or respected their limits. As Wired Magazine revealed in a February 2009 article entitled Recipe for Disaster, the Formula that Killed Wall Street, the inherent limitations of deified financial formulas like the Black-Scholes option pricing model, the Gaussian copula function, and the capital asset pricing model played a major role in the tech bubble of the year 2000 and the housing market and derivative shenanigans behind the 2008 recession. Learning how to use complicated financial formulas isn't the same as learning how to run a business. Understanding what businesses actually do to create and deliver value is essential knowledge, but many business programs have de-emphasized value creation and operations in favor of finance and quantitative analysis. In an article titled Upper Mismanagement, journalist Noam Scheiber explores the reasons behind the downfall of American industry, and I quote, Since 1965, the percentage of graduates of highly ranked business schools who go into consulting and financial services has doubled, from about one-third to about two-thirds. And while some of these consultants and financiers end up in the manufacturing sector, in some respects, that's the problem. Most of GM's top executives in recent decades hailed from a finance rather than an operations background. Outgoing GM CEO Fritz Henderson and his failed predecessor, Rick Wagner, both worked their way up from the company's vaunted treasurer's office. But these executives were frequently numb to the sorts of innovation that enable high-quality production at low cost. End quote. Process improvements are easy to skip if you want the business's short-term profit numbers to look good, even though they're essential to long-term viability. By ignoring the things that make a business operate more effectively, MBA-trained executives have unwittingly gutted previously viable companies in the name of quarterly earnings per share. Meanwhile, the widespread practice of using large amounts of debt as leverage created enormous companies with even more enormous obligations, amplifying returns in good years, but making the firms catastrophically unstable during the slightest downturn. The leveraged buyout strategy taught in many business school classrooms, buying a company, financing massive expansion via debt, then selling the business to another company at a premium, turned formerly self-sustaining companies into debt-bloated monstrosities, and the constant flipping of businesses from one temporary owner to the next turned financial markets into a game of musical chairs. When financial wizardry and short-term returns trump prudence and long-term value creation, Customers and employees suffer. The only people who benefit are the MBA-trained executive-level financiers and fund managers who extract hundreds of millions of dollars in transaction fees and salaries while destroying previously viable companies, hundreds of thousands of jobs, and billions of dollars of value. Business is about creating and delivering value to paying customers, not orchestrating legal fraud. Unfortunately for us all, Business schools have de-emphasized the former in favor of teaching the latter.